I'm going to start out, I'm going to give you a little history of the time in between um, the Old New Testament, but what we're going to talk about particularly today is two things. Number one, we're going to kind of, I hate this phrase, piggyback off of last week. So if you missed last week, you're not going to miss a lot today, but definitely go back. And then, so we're going to talk about um, communal aspect of, of this. But particularly what we're going to talk about is the idea of shalom. And Matt's talked about that a lot on Tuesday nights and stuff. So Matt's going to um, really go deep into that today. So let me give you a little history and then um, and we'll get right into it. So y'all good? Y'all ready? Okay. All right. In 586 BC, and I'm going to blow through these. If you need to go back and listen later, you can. In 586 BC, right around, it was the, that was the Babylonian captivity, Okay. And so the Israelites um, are, so the Jews were exiled to one place, Israelites were exiled to another, but they were all exiled. Um, They're exiled for around five decades. So if you don't know what the decade is, 10 years, so 50 years, okay, around. So around 538, 50 years later, B.C., the decree of Cyrus allows the Israelites to begin their return. And you see this story in the book of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah. They are sent back, and they begin the process of coming out of exile to rebuild Israel, to rebuild Jerusalem, okay? Right after this time, as I mentioned earlier, synagogue, probably created in captivity since they no longer had the temple, comes back to Israel and takes root. So this, there is a, a new type of Judaism, a new expression of Judaism when they come back from exile. When they go into exile, they're worshiping at a temple. When they're in exile, they start the synagogue stuff. And when they come back out of exile, synagogue begins to take root in their homeland, okay? And this is where it kind of goes from there. So around 332 B.C., Alexander the Great, if you've been in any history class in school, you've heard of Alexander the Great. In 332 B.C., Alexander the Great goes on his great world conquest where he conquers the entire civilized world. Huge thing. Now, I want you to hear this. He had, in in the Greek, if you heard the Bema podcast, you've probably heard them mention this stuff before. But he had what he called, or what the Greeks called, an um, eongelion, okay? Eongelion, which is the Greek word for good news or the word for gospel, okay? So you know like how we use the word like the gospel or the good news. In the New Testament, they use the word gospel or good news, right? Well, this word does not originate in Scripture. It actually originates with the Greeks. And Alexander the Great, along with the other Greeks, they had a good news or a gospel that they were bringing to the world, Okay? And their gospel, their eongelion, their gospel was Hellenism. So I'm going to break this down because it really it does matter. You'll see this in a second. The writers of Scripture got the idea of the label or the word good news or gospel from the Greeks. The Greek world, which is Hellenism, was a worldview that changed everything and is the worldview that we as Americans have primarily. Our worldview originated with the Greeks, if you didn't know this. Um, almost everything that we do in America originates with Greek thinking, Hellenism, right? So their, their, their gospel, their bringing to the known civilized world is Hellenism. The significant, I want you to focus on this, the significant thing about this worldview, 
is, remember last week what we talked about, is that it was for the first time in history rooted in one thing, me. I call this individualism. I don't even know if that's a word. That's what I call it. If, it, if it's not, then I made it up. So did you know the, the prophet Isaiah made up a ton of words in, his, um, in, in the book of Isaiah that there were no words before that? Um, anyway, it was a linguistic way he was um, playing on different words. So if Isaiah can make up words, I can make up words. The, so the significant thing about Hellenism was for the first time in history, this had never been the case in any other ancient people, for the first time in history, the view of the world, the philosophy, the way that they saw everything was rooted in me. This is huge. In this view, the gods, they had many different gods in Greek, the gods went from the center of the story, as in ancient times, to man being in the center of the story and the gods serving the interest of man. As, I, as I'm talking through this stuff, it's going to start sounding eerily familiar. Okay? So in, in the Hellenist view... Ancient religions, even not the one, even not Yahweh stuff. I mean, I'm talking about all these other religions. All the ancient religions were rooted in here is the God. So for us, the one true God, Yahweh. Here is Yahweh, and every single thing about every aspect of our lives is about Him. Right? The Greeks come in and they say, Every single thing in every aspect of our lives is about me, including the gods. Do you see the shift? So, so for, for, you know, if, if you bring the Yahweh terminology back into it, Yahweh in the Hellenistic view went from the center of the story to man being center of the story and Yahweh simply serving the interest of what man thought was best. Okay, if, you, if you're not catching this. Here, here's, here's what this looks like today. Um, do, how many of you have ever seen an ad for a church around here or anywhere else? And it said, the Lord is really moving in this place. Come and serve him. Not, right? In fact, if we did an ad like that, do you know how many people, people would show up? None. Well, I'll take that back. There would be a few show up, but you know what I'm saying? No, but what, what do we do today? We say, if I, I, I saw an ad pop up on my phone the other day for this um, on Google. We see this. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate Christmas, and here we're going to do it. We're going to have bounce houses. We're going to have Santa. We're going to have cookies. We're going to have hot chocolate. We're going to give away everybody $100. We're going to give away T-shirts. We're going to give away this. We're going to give away all this other stuff. Please show up to our service. And it's, that, that thing is packed, right? Do you know why? Because what we just said is we're going to serve you and what you like. Come be a part of us serving what you like. And we, in this Hellenistic, baptized American view, we say... That sounds right to me. Let's go do it. Right? 
as opposed to reality, which is we're not in this room. You're not in this room so that I can give you a good message. You're in this room so that I can hopefully give you a few more views into how to follow the rabbi, Jesus Christ, better. You see what I'm saying? You're not in this room following me. You're in this room following Jesus, which I hope if you would follow me, you would also be following Jesus. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? So he's saying, if you imitate me, you'll be imitating Christ because I'm imitating Christ in that level of a way. So I hope it could be said of me that if you followed me, you'd be following Christ. However, you're not in this room to follow me. You're in this room to follow him. I'm in this room to show you or to give you some views or some seeds or whatever analogy you want to use into how to follow him better, not to serve your interest in whatever you're doing. And it might help you in what you're doing because you're following the rabbi, but that's not why we're here. And that's why we're, we're not exploding at the seams yet. Because there's going to come a day when we realize, and this is what the exile was supposed to be all about. There's going to come a day when we realize that our best interest was not supposed to be in the center of the story. His was. That's why us making the cross about God cleansing us from our filth is completely wrong philosophically. Philosophy is how you think, right? It's God didn't come to do something for us. God came to do something for him, which was wanting us back. Do you see this? We make the cross about God saying, I've got to go fix this, which he, which he did fix it, right? But I've got to go take care of this filth so that I don't spew them out of my mouth or whatever verse you want to use. So I'm going to go and I'm going to beat the snot out of myself, right? Right? I'm going to beat the snot out of Jesus, and after I, I'm going to feel better about myself, and I'm going to forgive them. Huh? If you read the Old Testament, you, you know what you see over and over and over? Just one example. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways, I would turn to them, I would forgive their sins and heal their land, and no point does he talk about beating the snot out of anybody. So God is saying, I forgive without beating up anyone. In the Old Testament, over and over and over and over and over. So anytime we hear any kind of teaching that said God needed to do that to Jesus in order to forgive us, wrong. Because, but we say that because we are at the center of the story. This is all about us. No, this is all about what he wanted, which was us. So we're part of the story, and we're even a main piece of the story, but he's the one in the center of the story. So Jesus came to get us back to him, not to wipe us clean so that when God looks at us, he doesn't puke. Right? So the whole philosophy begins to change. We, so we make church about us. We make evangelizing about us. We, if I just do this, I will be good. If I just repeat this prayer, I will be in heaven. If I just show up to church, I will be okay. My life will be good. If I tithe, I will have good finances. All of it is about us. At no point do we say, I'm going to follow Jesus so we can see his kingdom come in our company. You know what I mean? I give so that we can keep doing this on a weekly basis. If I get returned from it, amazing. That's not why I give. I give so that we can get a return, which is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. 
So now I have no issue in giving whether or not I'm great or whether or not I'm bad because it's not, it's not about me, okay? Man went from being the result of God's image or the gods in the Greeks to God or the gods being the result of man's image in this Hellenistic view. That's where we get the famous Blaise Pascal quote that I, I say a lot. God made man in his image and man returned the favor right? Humanity, in this Hellenistic view, humanity is the new rulers of the world. Hellenistic thought is that man is the measure of all things. That's a direct quote from Pythagoras, Protagoras, excuse me, and I'm probably butchering that name, but from one of the philosophers in Greek, a direct quote, he says, this sums up Greek thought very well, he says, man is the measure of all things. That's what he says. And if this is the case, if that's true, then everything in life has to be about me. My security, my luxury, my comfort, my entertainment, etc. In this, I don't necessarily care what the gods desire because they are essentially serving what I desire. When, when you pray, do we, like, for just, I, I, so many examples. Do I pray, Lord, make this door open? Or, Lord, let this be the door that needs to open. Let this be the relationship that's for me. Let this be the job that's for me. Let this, or do I say, what do you want? And if he says, here's what I want, I want you to stay put for 10 years. <laughs> do for example, and I say that because I'm in a room of a bunch of uh, people that don't like that. So, because we're young. But, but if, if God says that, I want you to sit right here and I want you to be faithful for 10 years and I'll tell you what to do after that. Do we say yes, sir? Or do we say, I don't know if I heard that right. We say, because it's not about what he wants. It's not about, it's about what we want and we try to twist God's arm into making what we want work, which is why typically it does not. Right? <clears throat> the good news or the gospel, Evangelion, that Alexander the Great preached, we could say, was Hellenism is here to the whole world. Hellenism is here. Here's what Hellenism was built on. Four pillars. I, just please hear how familiar this is. Hellenism was built on four pillars. Education, health care, entertainment, and athletics or sports. Four pillars. Education, health care, entertainment, and athletics. These were a play on every single person's narcissism. All of them. All of these provide for the needs and wants of self. He's essentially saying, I'm going to give people exactly what they want for self, and in that, they'll not only need me, they'll want me. I don't need armies to stay in power. I can just keep giving them what they want, and they'll keep me in power. How, how do you... listen? How do you, I want you to think about this. 
And Brandon, you're the historian in the room. You love history, so you're probably eating all this up. Um, why? Think about this. There's two, Lord, help me. There's two ways I can stay in power. So if we conquer, I don't know, North Korea tomorrow. There's two ways that we could stay in power. We could either do what we've done in the past. We could either send a huge military force in and anyone who steps out of line, essentially kill them, right? And that's how we stay in power, by force. Or we could go into North Korea, and this is just an example, go into North Korea and we could say, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna make North America, I mean North Korea, just like America. We're gonna give you McDonald's, right? We're gonna give you Chick-fil-A. We're gonna give you our education system. We're gonna give you health care. We're gonna give you money. We're gonna give you nice roads. We're gonna give you freedom. We're gonna give you sports. We're gonna send the NFL twice a year to do games in your country. You all right? And, right? And we're gonna do this. Now, how many of you think a bunch of people in North Korea is gonna sit around and say, I, man, I just don't know. I don't think I like this. No. They're gonna say, my Lord, how fast can we get Kim Jong-un out of here? Right? Is that his name? Yeah. So, <laughs> sorry, Anna, sorry. But uh, do you understand this? So, so Alexander the Great is obviously brilliant. He's just conquered the entire civilized world. And they're sitting around there saying, how are we going to stay in power? Because we're in power, but how are we going to stay in power? Here's how we're going to stay in power. We're not going to send a military. We're going to guarantee them exactly what they desire. We're going to give them education. We're going to give them health care. We're going to give them entertainment. And we're going to give them athletics. Brilliant. Okay? Brilliant. Do, do you see how our world is that? Education. Their, their education system, they would go to places called gymnasiums, and they weren't like basketball court. Gymnasiums back then were essentially universities, colleges. So they had colleges. Their health care, the first hospitals were built in this time. Okay, so this infrastructure, hospitals are coming in. Entertainment was the one. Think about this. How many of you go home and not sit around and you turn on Disney Plus or Netflix or YouTube TV or Hulu or whatever else? All right, Peacock. Does anybody watch Peacock? You know what I mean? Uh, except for The Office. Yeah, you know, but anyway, you can get any streaming service you can buy. And it's, why? Because it's playing to what we like, right? So if I like The Office and you like Disney princess movies, and this person likes Tiger King, and this person likes whatever, guess what? We all get what we want. Depending on what you want, you just flip it on, and it's right there, right? This comes from the Greeks. Theater, and writings, and art, and poetry, all this stuff, okay? Entertainment, and athletics. Athletics is really unique. Athletics came in for two reasons. Um, one, to create a culture of competition, and two, to create a culture, culture of tribal identity. So if I wear a Clemson sweatshirt into this room, half of y'all gonna be mad and half of y'all gonna be excited, right? Because we have this tribal identity. Those are my people, those are your people, let's get together and fight and see who's better. Right? And I don't even, I love that, but this is where, that, that came into the picture so that specifically this athletics so that it could create this environment of competition. Because think about competition. What happens when there's just Amazon? 
prices skyrocket because there's no other choice. It's called a monopoly, right? But if there's Amazon and there's this and there's this, because there's, there is no other type of Amazon right now, but hopefully one day, and there's this and this and this and this and this, and they're all competing, what happens? Prices plummet because of the competition. So there's this, this, this competition aspect that comes in here that is brought in by athletics, but not just that. There's tribal identity. So now those who are subscribed to Amazon Prime, it's like that Walmart Plus stuff is junk. Amazon is the stuff. And the people who love Walmart Plus, which I don't know anybody that's on Walmart Plus, but if you are, praise the Lord, all those people are saying Amazon is junk or whatever. But it's just this tribal, why is that so important? Because... If someone comes into the picture, hello Christians, comes into the picture and says, this is actually not the way we're supposed to view the world. And what's been simmering in the culture is tribal identity. We are Hellenist and Greeks. And competition, when the Christians come in, we say, let's kill them. They're not like us. Jesus is not like us, and he's claiming he's king. But Caesar's our king. Do you see what this does? Right? When somebody from a party that you didn't vote for gets elected president, we get mad. Why? Because we have built into our DNA competition and tribal identity, which goes directly one million percent against unity. I can't be unified to something that I'm complete. You know how hard it was for, for me to go into Williams Bryce and not want to just, just fight? You know what I'm saying? I've never heard so many people say F you to me in my entire life. You know what I mean? And it's because I was wearing a Clemson shirt. But, you know, and so there, there was everything in me wanted to say, I'll, sh- I mean, you want, I'll show you. You know what I'm saying? I, there's some sometimes I'm sometimes I'm like, man, I wish I wish somebody out here on the streets and I'm walking would just try to jump. That was just getting, you know what I mean? Just wit, you know. But of course, I restrained myself, even though that DNA and the reason the reason there was this tension was simply because I live in the same city. We're under the same government, under the same city, paying the same taxes and doing the same things in life, going to the same restaurants, going to the same coffee shops, all this stuff. But we're completely against each other. Why? Because deep down in our DNA is a tribal identity and a competition. This all comes from the Greeks. Do you see this? I mean, so, and you never realize this until right now. Many other things happen in, during this period. There's a common language across the civilized world, Koine Greek. There's roads, there's systems, there's large cities. The Maccabean Revolt, which is in the Apographa, um, which is the other books of the Bible for some uh, people, the Catholics. Um, we don't consider them part of the um, canon of the Bible, but they are historical books. They're fun to read sometimes. So, um, though they're not, I wouldn't you know, take, take them with a grain of salt. But in the book of 1st, 2nd Maccabees, uh, it tells the story of Judah and Maccabeus and his Judah Maccabeus and his brothers who revolt against the Greeks who had taken over the region of Judea, where eventually they come into Jerusalem. They take over the temple. This is happening in between the Old and New Testament, right? Y'all hang with me. So the Greeks come into Jerusalem. They take over the temple. The leader Seleucus goes 
into the temple of God. Okay? He goes into the temple. He sacrifices a pig. Now, if you've read any, if you know anything about the Jews, you know how they pigs are completely unclean, right? So Seleucus goes into the temple, sacrifices a pig on the altar of God. This is what's happening. So the group of Jews with Judah and his brothers are obviously furious with this. They revolt against the Greeks, okay? They miraculously, you're talking about a club of dudes with a bunch of weapons going against the Greeks who had just conquered the civilized world, okay? Miraculously, they overthrow the Seleucus, the Greeks. They get the temple back. This is where Hanukkah comes from. If you didn't know that, like, why do we celebrate Hanukkah? This is where it comes from. Because they go, history says, and again, take this with a grain of salt, but Jewish tradition says that when they go back into the temple after this eight-day conquest, they're, they're fighting the Greeks for eight days, they win. On the eighth day, they go into the temple and the menorah is still burning, somehow miraculously, even though no one had added oil to it for eight days. So that's why in Hanukkah they uh, light the candles and, you know, that's what they're celebrating, okay? If you didn't know that. Um, some Christians, we were joking about this the other day, some Christians say Hanukkah is demonic or something. I would, if, we, if I had a dollar for every time we called something demonic, I'd be so rich, I'd be, I'd be flying on rocket ships to outer space. You know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> but uh, while, while, Am- Jesus, while Amazon factory is getting plummeted by tornadoes and people dying and all that stuff, J- Jeff Bezos is flying up in outer space yesterday. Amazing. Um, Hellenism. So, <clears throat> but, but this, is, this is where Hanukkah comes from. I want you to think about this, though. Let's say this, let's say this is legit, and I'm, I mean, I'm going to err on the side that it is because they've celebrated it since then for hundreds, thousands of years at this point. But can you imagine this? Revolting against the Greeks, you run into the temple. This is all between the Old and New Testament. We call them the silent years. But between the Old and New Testament, going into the temple, and that thing is still burning. No one's added oil to it for eight days, and it's still burning. Can you imagine that? Like, it it would be the sign that the Lord has accomplished this. Amazing, amazing. And then after this, there's Herod coming into power, which is really, if you ever study this, really, really interesting. Um, Herod is probably the richest person in history. I mean, just so much wealth, we couldn't even comprehend it. So rich. Um, I heard somebody teach this the other day, but Herod inherited um, this, this company, basically the company we would call it, of spices, but there was no other person selling spices. And spices were, I mean, gold back then, right? So the monopoly... Can you imagine being the only person selling spices and spices being one of the top commodities to purchase? I mean, so rich, okay? So Herod comes into power, and then we have the Romans. Then there's the corruption of the Sadducees, the separating of the Zealots and the Pharisees from the Sadducees, etc. But I don't want to focus on any of that stuff, even though I I would love to, because it's so interesting. But at the heart of all of this that I do want to focus on is the complete shift by way of Greek influence 
from communal thinking to individual thinking. All of it. The Sadducees, it is said that, we don't, we don't understand the difference between Sadducees and Pharisees because in Scripture, there are, it's always like Sadducees and Pharisees. They're so different. But the Sadducees um, were in charge of, they were leading at this point. And uh, they were so corrupt, so corrupt, they so loved Hellenism that there were, Josephus, the historian tells us, there were so many um, priests that they only had, each priest only had to work about two weeks a year. Can you imagine that? Just two weeks a year. There were so many. However, on the Sabbath day, they could not find a priest to come do the Sabbath service because all the priests were at the entertainment venue watching the sports. The, again, does this sound familiar? Right? <laughs> okay. So, so here's where we are. In a world meant to operate in community, individual, Matt, get ready to come up here. In a world meant to operate in community, individualism presented a masked anti-design problem that no one wanted to address because, let's face it, everything being about me feels good. You know, Have you heard the phrase, if it's not broken, don't fix it? Everything being about me feels great. That's why people show up to things that are all about them. They don't care about the service. They care about the free food. Right? And that's why people show up, because it's all about me. And the problem is, is the world was meant to operate in us terminology, in our terminology, in we terminology. But when it went to individualism, it presented a problem because individualism feels amazing. I can fight my way to the top. I can cut everybody down in the way, in the, uh, on my way there, and it don't matter. Right? The community thinking says, if I'm going to the top, I'm taking everybody else with me. That requires sacrifice. Everything being about me requires no sacrifice. Do you see this? If, I'm, if we're thinking communally, it's not I'm going to be rich, it's we're going to be rich, which means I've got to spread some of the wealth around so that we make it to a certain goal. If it's all about me, I can take all of it to the top with me and leave everybody in the dust. Do you, do you see this? So it's real difficult to teach a society, which is why it's really difficult for us to do what we're doing, to teach a society that is actually not about you and that's actually better. You know what I'm saying? I'm gonna give you a couple more things and Matt's gonna come up here. I believe this is the seed of our issue seeing God correctly. Our core philosophy, the way that we think, has been, <clears throat> um, let me say, let me, uh, flaw, excuse me, okay. Our core philosophy has been flawed. We, like the Greeks, have put us in the center of the story and God as a support role to the us in the center of the story. Let me give you a few examples. For example, do we make decisions on what affects us or what affects what he desires? Just a few examples. Do we make choices based on what furthers our agenda and goals or what furthers God's agenda and goals? Do we give what we can live comfortably without or do we give him what he deserves and trust we will be provided for? Do we make church and the family of God the center of our lives or career and entertainment or education or whatever else the Hellenistic 
um, thing brought in? Do we make that stuff the center of our lives and church and the family of God and devotion and all that stuff the area around what's in the center of our lives that fills only the empty spaces? Think Right? Do you, do you see how we have put us in the center? And that is a result of this period of time in history. The shalom of creation is when God is at the center of the story and we, because of that, have an active memory of what is true and what is real. It is delusional. We can be completely successful, which is why America has been super successful in Hellenistic success. We made it to the top. But when we got to the top, we looked around and realized everybody else is still at the bottom. So then we had to come up with a way of thinking that said it was okay for us to be at the top and everybody else at the bottom. Right? We had to come up with an atonement theory that made it completely okay with us being here and everybody else being down here and us not caring. We had to come up with denominations that made it okay for us to be right here and everybody else being down here and us not care about it. We had to build our entire philosophy, the way that we think, on us because that's how we got here. And Yahweh is shifting us right now, and if we're not careful, because it is going to require us to lay down us in order to take up we and our if we're not careful, we're going to miss it. When he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the reason that nobody wanted to follow this was because they were going to have to lay down a lot of their Hellenism in order to see the kingdom that was about us, not me. Okay, Matt, come up here. This is going to be amazing. Here, take this mic. Y'all give Matt a little hand. All right, um, so I'm going to be doing... I told Josh I wanted to do this because this is something that the Lord has been wrecking me pretty intense uh, with. I'm not going to use the chair. Um, so I asked if I could do a what's called a homily. So this is what's done primarily in Catholicism, Anglican, things like that. What they'll do is they'll pre-write their discourse, and then they will present their discourse along with Scripture and things like that to give it context. Uh, the reason I did this is because I didn't want to miss anything, and on top of that, I wanted to make sure that it was in, uh, in line with what Josh was talking about because he sent me his notes and stuff. So that being said, um, keep everything, he's, everything he said is perfectly in line with what you're hearing. So please let he who has an ear hear. Um, but here we go. Uh, Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace or shalom to those who his favor rest. Isaiah 26.3, you will keep in perfect shalom those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Colossians 3, 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. In the beginning, God. This God lived and thrived triunally in everlasting shalom, that is, perfect peace as Father, Son, and Spirit. This God was so generous and eternally loving that he decided to create from and in himself a creation that looks, sounds, and acts like him, so much so that shalom can actually be manifested in the natural as well as the supernatural. So God created. 
He created the stars, the waters, the lands, the fish, the birds, the land animals, and his crowning jewel, Adam, that is, mankind. This Adam was himself said to have been made in the very image of God. This Adam knows how to push his animal appetites, that is, the flesh, aside to usher in shalom into the cosmos, and that he did. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day in perfect shalom in the garden. However, God saw that Adam needed community. He was talking about community. And to share his shalom with one another. So God created. He created another from whom, I'm sorry, uh, who was from the very nature of Adam, who was from the very nature of God. And thus perfect shalom abounded in our earth. That is until things changed. In this garden, there was one tree that God commanded his image bearers not to eat of. He created this tree to remind them that they can say and should say no when their appetite tries to say yes to the wrong things. You see, what separated mankind from beast was mankind's ability to say no. When an animal, let's say a bear, is hungry and ravenous, there is nothing stopping this beast from eating everything in its path. Does the bear stop and ask itself, hmm, this may not be good to eat or good for my diet? Certainly not. It will rip apart and gnaw at everything in its path. The beast has one thing in mind, survival. Mankind has another thing in mind, shalom. The woman that came from Adam, let's call her Eve, saw that the tree was good, not for shalom, but for consumption. Eve was hungry and chose to give more into her appetite than her identity at the direction of a beast or a serpent. She consumed the fruit and shared some with her lover, and suddenly a new presence came into the story. You see, up until now, we've had perfect shalom. We've had peace that surpassed all understanding. We had generosity for others and for creation in a loving community of the triune God, Adam and Eve. Now we have this menace called sin. Sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. It is the thing that adds a ripple to the perfectly still waters. It is the one thing that mankind thinks it wants but never needs. It's the thing that tells mankind that it can be like God when it already is. I've already, well, I'm sorry. I've heard some say that this was God creating sin for the purpose of furthering his plan, but the problem is in the statement itself. You see, sin wasn't created. Sin is simply a disturbance of the one thing that is real. Sin doesn't exist. It distorts what does. Sin can be equated to darkness, which has no ontological existence. It's simply the absence of light. In the same way, sin is the absence of shalom. After mankind disturbed this shalom, God made a promise to three parties, the man, the woman, and the beast. The promise states that the beast's self that mankind was given into and the sin that came from it will have its head crushed by one who is to come called the Prince of Peace or Prince of Shalom. This prince will have the government on his shoulders and his reign will never end. This prince will put an end to any disturbance of Shalom once and for all. After this event took place, God in his infinite goodness banished mankind from the place of perfect shalom in fear that if they eat of the tree of life, they will live forever under the bondage of this disturbance and misidentification. Soon after, mankind and its two persons comes together as one and creates after its own kind conceiving two sons. One was named Cain or Cain, the other was Avel or Abel. 
Even outside of the garden, it seemed as though shalom was established among men again. That is, until Cain became jealous of God's acceptance of Abel's offering over his own. While the jealousy itself is a disturbance of Cain's personal shalom, Cain would go on to murder his own brother, thus creating an even larger disturbance of shalom and an increasing of this sin in the world. This cycle of shalom and sin doesn't stop there. As God's creation story continues, mankind continues to drift further and further from shalom until it gets to the point where there is only one person on earth who is all about living in shalom rather than disturbing it. That person is Noah. God would ask Noah to essentially recreate the shalom by destroying the disturbance of it entirely. Upon disturbing, I'm sorry, upon destroying this sin, we see God essentially create a new story with Noah who, like mankind originally, found himself falling into sin himself by becoming drunk and cursing the line of one of his sons as enemies of God and his people. Out of this line would come Egypt, who would later enslave the people of God. However, before becoming enslaved, God used a man who practiced perfect shalom named Joseph. I'm skipping ahead for the sake of time. Uh, Joseph, through his many circumstances caused by the sins of others, would be made second in command of all of Egypt and lead them to thrive as the superpower in the world. In this state, Joseph restores shalom in his family by practicing forgiveness to those who sold him into Egypt in the first place and offering to keep all of his family in the land of Egypt to thrive as a nation under a, at the time, good pharaoh. That same pharaoh and Joseph himself would later die off and a new man would rise to power. And instead of keeping perfect peace or shalom, he would oppress the people of God by enslaving them. Marty Solomon has a name for those who care only about self-preservation, as Josh mentioned, and go as far as to oppressing others, and that name is empire. And I'm going to use that for the remainder of the discussion. God, hearing the cries of the oppressed, raises up another, a.k.a. Moses, who also cares for the lives of the oppressed to ultimately lead the oppressed out of this empire. We know this today as salvation. Not merely a salvation that escapes into heaven after death, but a salvation from the oppressor into a life of true shalom with the Father who, again, hears the cries of the oppressed. When the people of God are saved, God marries his people at Mount Sinai, and they march for 40 years towards the land God promised Abraham. The people of God eventually enter at the direction of Joshua and destroy the disturbance of shalom in all of the land before inhabiting it themselves. At long last, shalom was restored among the people of God, right? Well, no. The people shortly after inhabiting the land go to God and beg for a king, and God tells his people that he doesn't want them to be like those around them, but rather to be different. However, as the people persisted, God appointed them judges to rule over their people. In the span of multiple generations, however, the people of God would go through a massive cycle of disturbed shalom, and then God redeeming them, bringing them back into true shalom. Needless to say, God at this point is showing an infinite amount of grace to his people and to the world. When we get to the book of Samuel in our Bible, we see the people of God saying that the judges system isn't working and that they need a king instead, even though this is contrary to what God wanted for his people. However, this time God gave them a king. He appointed a man named Saul, who at the time had the desire to bring about shalom. 
However, this attitude was short-lived as Saul became more obsessed with what he could do rather than who he was. He disobeys God's command to wait for Samuel before making a sacrifice on the battlefield against a city. Samuel then tells Saul that he is no longer qualified to be the king of Israel. After the life of Saul, we see a young man rise up by the name of David, whose name means beloved. David was a man after God's own heart and sought to bring shalom in a world, in a new and fresh way to the world. However, he, like all those before him, gave into his animal appetite and chased something that ultimately disturbed shalom for him and many others. David adventures up to a rooftop and sees a woman bathing named Bathsheba. David commands his servant to bring her to his room so that he may sleep with her, and so they did. Many scholars believe that David very well could have, for the sake of kids, I'm not going to say the word, could have abused this woman, considering a great detail we see a few verses later in the story. We find out that she was married. David, trying to cover up what he did, had this man uh, put at the front lines of battle, specifically in the spot that's most dangerous, and he ended up dead because of it. David, a man after God's own heart and a man of shalom, has disturbed the peace and has done something that most of us today would consider a heinous crime. However, God in his beautiful and boundless grace forgives David. David has quite a few sons, all having unique stories, but I want to focus on one specifically. That man's name is Solomon. Christians today praise Solomon as being one of the greatest kings ever and highlight him at highlight all the great parts of his life, yet fail to see the fact that he is one of, if not the main reasons, that Israel was taken into captivity. What did the wisest man on earth do that was so bad? To answer this question, we have to look at what God commanded his people in regards to how a king should be if one was appointed among their people. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20 says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner among you, one who is not an Israelite. Listen to this part. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. What we see in the life of Solomon is him doing the exact opposite of what God told him to do. Let's break these down one by one. One, the king must not acquire great numbers of horses or make people return to Egypt to get more of them. 1 Kings 10, 26-29 says, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king had made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Q. Number two, the king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. First Kings 11, one through five says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told 
the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart to other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Asherteth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Lastly, the king must not accumulate, accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. 1 Kings 10, 14 through 15, and then verse 23, says the weight of gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. Verse 23, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. I want to point out one more thing that is said about Solomon before moving on. In First and Second Kings, when describing a king, the author would describe them as either doing good in the eyes of the Lord or doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. Those who did evil in the eyes of the Lord had God's hand against them. Listen to what is said about Solomon as he breaks those commands from God. First Kings 11, 6 through 11 says, So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord God completely as David his father had done. On the hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their god. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had oppressed, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decree, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates or one of your servants." After Solomon, we see the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms and later get taken captive by the Assyrians and then sent into exile by the Babylonians. The breaking of Shalom has consequences, and Israel was experiencing that firsthand. While this is all going on, however, God is raising up prophets who begin to proclaim warnings and woes to the people of God, but also hope of one to come who would not only save them from their present oppression, but from all oppression." This one that they prophesied about would not only set Israel free, but the world free. This person would not just be another king, but rather the king of all kings. This person wouldn't just be another man, but the God of man. This person would be the answer to the broken shalom in the world. That person's name is Jesus. But we will return to him shortly. In the midst of this exile, the people of Israel cry out to God for salvation and he saves them and brings them back to the promised land where the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt at the direction of Nehemiah. Also during this time, Ezra would find the word of God and would proceed to read and proclaim what it said. The temple would be rebuilt and Shalom would be restored once again. After the time of the prophets, the New Testament begins. If you were reading through it the first time, you assume that between Malachi and Matthew, there is no time gap. But that rather the story just continues. However, between the Old and New Testament, as Josh mentioned, there is 400 years. We may not see this as much, but a lot has happened in that gap that disturbs the shalom the people of God brought back when returning from exile. 
I'll spare the gratuitous details, which Josh has already went through anyway. Um, however, I do want to bring up one thing that happened in this time that was very important to where the story goes in the New Testament. The thing, the thing was the obvious overthrow of Israel by the Roman Empire in 63 BC. The Roman Empire championed and boasted their empire. They were the superpower of the world who stopped everyone in their path. Rome says you either bow the knee to the empire or die to shalom, but you can't have both. Rome has the polar opposite of shalom. They valued self-preservation over world restoration. Rome said that if you aren't for us, you're against us. Rome was also known as having the strongest army on earth. Does this all sound familiar? I digress. In the midst of this chaotic rule of Rome and Israel, an angel appears to a young, likely 13-year-old girl named Mary and tells her that she is going to conceive and give birth to a child who will be called the Christ, the son of the living God. And it was so. This God-man child named Jesus was immaculately born in the lower portion of a home where sacrificial animals were placed and began what would be the most historic life in the history of all mankind. Around the age of 30, Jesus began his public ministry and would go on to do things that culture at that time would call counterproductive and maybe even heretical. He ate dinner with tax collectors and sinners. He touched lepers and brought about their healing. He was baptized by John the baptizer, who the Pharisees accused of heresy. He got into the dust with the adulteress. He stood face to face with a demon-possessed man. This rabbi was different. Last page, I promise. What separated Jesus from the rest is that his ministry was aimed at those who were oppressed because he knew that restoring shalom means hearing the cries of the oppressed and bringing about their healing wherever it was needed. Jesus also chastised those who were against this very idea of ministry. You see, the other groups of people that were against Jesus were only concerned with their status in the world and how their group of people prospered. The poor, the sick, the hungry, the thirsty were the least of their concerns. Jesus' primary target was these types of people. Shalom isn't possible when we ignore the oppressed. If oppression isn't why shalom is lacking in our world, I'm sorry, in fact, oppression is the reason why shalom is lacking in our world, whether we are the oppressed or the oppressor. Shalom is disturbed when the sick remain sick. Shalom is disturbed when the hungry remain hungry. Shalom is disturbed when the thirsty remain thirsty. For shalom to be present and alive, humanity has to hear, chase, and defend the oppressed. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Not only did Jesus care for the oppressed, he also cared for his enemies. As we know, Judas Iscariot, the disciple of Jesus, betrayed Jesus by selling him out to the chief priests. But before Jesus was taken, Jesus had a meal with his disciples. We like to think of it, I'm sorry, we like to think of it like the famous painting of the Last Supper, where they are sitting in chairs at a nice dining table and the sun beaming through a window. However, that is not how this works. This would have been, they would have been laying on pillows on their left side and the table would have been about one to three inches off the ground and they would eat, they would eat from it laying side by side with their guest. The host would be on the far side of the room on pillow number two. The person to the right of the host would be his best friend, and the person to his left would be his guest of honor. Judging by the biblical account, we know that John was on his right as we read him laying his head on Jesus' chest during the meal. 
But what about the left? When Jesus was asked who would betray him, he said in Matthew 26, 23, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. In feasts like this, a bowl for rinsing your hands is shared among the host and the ones next to him. This means that Jesus' honored guest for the Last Supper was none other than Judas, the betrayer. Why is this significant? Jesus chose in the midst of chaos that he was about to endure to bring about shalom by feeding his enemy. Finally, we see at the end of Jesus' life him restore shalom for mankind once and for all by dying on a cross. He that didn't know what disturbing shalom was became that very disturbance so that we who might become the righteousness of God and experience shalom forever. He then rose again three days later. So what now? We as the people of God now have the responsibility to do exactly what Jesus did, restore shalom. Jesus carried the disturbance of this very shalom and killed it. It's now our duty to usher in this new and everlasting shalom into the cosmos. Seek out the oppressed and restore them as Jesus has restored you. Rob Bell once said, you know how close you are to the you know how close you are to God based on how loud the cries of the oppressed are. Do you hear the cries of the oppressed? If you do and do nothing about it, you are disturbing shalom. Resist empire, embrace shalom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, y'all give him a hand. <clears throat> that was awesome. That reminded me, and I'll, I'll wrap up. I'm, I don't have a lot now, um, but just to bring it home. Actually, Matt, I know you just did that. Could you? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're doing triple duty. So the thing that Matt just said about uh, Judas, one, did anybody know that? Yeah. Amazing. Uh, I've shared this with you guys before. N.T. Wright, who is one of my favorite theologians, um, was asked recently. Um, so most, most traditions believe that Jesus descended into hell for three days when he was between death and resurrection. Um, a lot of the songs, the hymns, and you know, stuff from old that we sing say that. And so anyway, so N.T. Wright, who used to be the Bishop of Durham, Durham in the Anglican Church, um, he's not anymore, but he still, of course, has a lot of connections in it. Well, he was talking to one of the leaders of a church um, months ago, and he said that this, this guy told him a story. So the question that was asked of N.T. Wright was, what did Jesus do in those three days? And um, so he... Uh, so he said he, he was having this conversation with this pastor, and um, the pastor said a few weeks ago in, in, in our church, we had a Sunday school class, and in that Sunday school class, they were actually talking about what, you know, Jesus descending in the hill. And, um, and he said that there was a discussion with these kids of what was happening. Why? Why did Jesus do that? And um, one of the kids, when asked what Jesus was doing, responded and said he was finding his friend Judas. 
Now, I don't, this is a kid. That's not the Jesus I grew up with. And, um, and I don't think it's because anybody had any ill intention. I think it's just we just didn't know. And um, St. Anselm of Canterbury, one of the early church fathers, when writing about what Jesus did at the cross, he actually says Jesus restored shalom in the cosmos. And um, just... I, I just want you to picture this, that the one who betrayed, and again, we don't have any writing on this, but imagine this. Why did, what was Jesus doing in those three days from the mouth, out of the mouths of babes, right? And a kid saying, he was finding his friend Judas. And how many people in our world have we tossed aside because of what they've done when that's the very ones Jesus was going after. The way God was going to save the cosmos was by putting things right. This is, as Matt said, shalom. But the first thing that would be the domino that sent a chain correction through the creation was putting that which started the delusional formless back right which was mankind. So the word became flesh, human nature, sarks, and dwelled in us. He let us expose and spend all of our darkness on him by murdering and rejecting God, a manifestation of what had been festering since Genesis, so that in declaring it finished, he might put us in our rightful place bring shalom between us and God, therefore begin the process with us of restoring peace and shalom to the cosmos. In Adam, a viral darkness began spreading across creation because mankind was given such authority that as went man, so went creation. But Adam was just a type and shadow of the even greater effect of the greater man, Jesus, whose viral light is currently spreading across creation until, as John says, there is no room for darkness in it. No room. Let me read, because uh, I don't know if you noticed that we haven't read anything out of the Bible today. But I want to end with this. Um, because we're talking about time in between the Bible, so, you know, whatever. I want to end with this. The last thing in the Old Testament, the last thing we hear, is in Malachi, you don't have to turn there, it's in Malachi 4, 6. The last thing says, See, this is the Lord, See, I will send the prophet Elijah, John the Baptist we know, to you, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And that's, we're not going to get into all the Hebrew right there, but anyway. He, now this is the last thing we hear. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction, period. 
He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the children to their parents. And if I didn't send John the Baptist to prepare the way for the Messiah, preaching a message that would restore the family, the land would be totally destructed. It's heading in a direction of total and complete destruction. So I'm going to send John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah to you to bring the hearts of the parents to the children and the children to the parents so that the land won't get where it's going, destruction. What is he saying? He's saying that what Jesus was going to do, initiated by John the Baptist, was restore the family. By restoring the family, he was restoring shalom. Do you know what that is? The hearts of the father to the children and the children to the father? What that is, is he's restoring the kids to care about the ways of the parent and the ways of the parents to care about the ways of the kids. If I'm caring about the ways of the ones who came before me, who am I not caring about? My ways. And if the parents are caring about the ways of the ones coming after them, who are they not caring about? Their ways. What God is doing is bringing back this government and reign of peace, but the first initiator in it is to take their eyes off of themselves and put their eyes back on another. And I, if, if we have learned anything over the past two years, which most, most haven't, but if we've learned anything over the past couple of years, it is how much, whether we like it or not, most of the time we don't, how much we need a thinking permeating in our society that thinks in terms of we first. What? It, 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 is, it is necessary for us to make that shift. And what the Lord is asking us to do right now is to walk with him into a place where we no longer see things in terms of me. We see things in terms of what role does me play in we. And that's why I've been saying forever that if we, y'all, every single week, I say this every week, every week, that if we wanted to have a gigantic church, I know how to do that. Easy. You give me a million dollars, I can build us a building that Columbia would fawn over for years. Thousands. All you've got to do is make it about me. That's it. All I've got to do is give you exactly what you want and you'll keep coming back. Y'all, we don't even know it. We don't even know. Do you know why you keep watching Netflix series? Just a little example. You know why you keep watching it? Because the ending of every episode is meant to manipulate, manipulate your thinking into thinking you need to watch the next one which is why they always end on a cliffhanger. Because they know if it ends on a cliffhanger, you'll just come back. Why? Because you want to know how it ends. Right? 
How do they keep us watching the news? They don't keep us watching the news by telling us how great everything is. They keep us watching the news by telling us how awful everything is. You know why? Because I've got to know how to take care of me. And the only way I know how to take care of me is if I know how bad everything else around me is. It creates a tribal mentality. If, if all I ever see on the news is how bad that group is and that group is and that group is and that group is, do you know what that creates? Me and mine at the expense of y'all. But, but this, this is what it is. And Yahweh is coming in and he's cleaning the slate and he's saying, we're gonna start over. And the first thing we're gonna start with is the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. All of what things? Think about this. In this Hellenistic view, all these people have been given this entire culture where they just get everything they want. And he says, Jesus, if you'll put God back in the middle of the story, he'll give you all that you need that you think this being about you is going to give you. I know this isn't like, this isn't, this isn't a message I even want to preach. Why would I want to preach something to a group of people that all of our lives we've been told it's about us and it has to be about us and everything we know about God is about us? Why on earth would I want to tell you that it's actually not about you and go completely counter of everything that you know about you and God? Because I believe that if we could dare to see things as he sees things, we'll actually see his kingdom come. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. I didn't even, um, y'all go ahead and bow your heads. I didn't even, um, when, I, when, we, when we were thinking about, or not thinking about, but planning Christmas, um, what I was not planning on was preaching about this. I mean, Lord, I was planning on preaching about, you know, Jesus and the history of it and all that stuff. And we got some history today. But the Lord just met me last week and this week and started whispering what it means to have a community that is actually a community. It's not a bunch of individuals in a community, but it's one community with a bunch of individuals. Uh, and as he has walked us through this, it's like, wait just a, wait just a minute. So Lord, I, I am, um, to use the terminology in worship, I am jealous over this message. Not this sermon, this, this message from you, this revelation that th this is not what we thought it was. And we say that, I feel like, every week, but it's true. This is not what we thought it was. However, in a family where we have given you the grace, we've given you the permission to do whatever you need to do in us, whatever that means, in that we are starting to find the reality and the truth and the way and the life that comes straight through you. This is what Isaiah says. Accompanied with the prophecy of the Messiah was of the increase of his government and shalom, there shall be no end. Do you, do you know what the Old Testament also says? It says, and this is King James, but it says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. As we think, so we are. 
So Yahweh is radically redeeming how we think, which is going to produce us living in such a way of identity that we've never lived in, that we're going to experience the kingdom like like I never dreamed I would see in my lifetime, I believe we're actually gonna see. Every single day, I am more convinced that we are closer than we've ever been. Every day. So Lord, I pray that you would fuel the flames of devotion this week. I pray that you would fuel the flames of longing to remain, to be still and know. And I pray that our prayer life would shift, that we're gonna, that we're gonna put you back in the center. I'm gonna stop praying for you to make my ways work out. I'm gonna start praying for you to show me your ways, even if that means the expense of my ways. Even if me following your ways means I have to lay down everything I thought my way was going to be, I'm gonna start shifting my prayer life and we're gonna start shifting our prayer life to instead of saying what I think you should do, I want to receive ears to hear and eyes to see what you want to do. And there's going to be some very different decisions and very different ways of living that come from that. And also that's going to come from that is fruit like we have never seen before. And so I thank you for those answered prayers in Jesus' name. I thank you for the no's. I thank you for the times we have prayed things and you have answered no because it was not what was best for us. I thank you for the times that I wanted to be a recording artist and you said no. I, I didn't like it. I fought against it. I fought you. But thank God you said no. So Lord, we, we honor you in this place. This is your house and we are your people who are called by your name. And we love you in your name. Amen.